We're back in Mark chapter 8, Mark 8, we're going to be verses 22 through 26, Mark 8, 22 through 26, just like Jesus, that's the topic we've been studying through the book of Mark, the gospel of Mark, the account of Jesus and his ministry, his life. So verse 22, follow along as I read, and they, being Jesus and his disciples, came to Bethsaida, and some people brought to him a blind man and begged him to touch him. And he took the blind man by the hand and led him out of the village. And when he had spat on his eyes and laid his hands on him, he asked him, do you see anything? And he looked up and he said, I see people, but they look like trees walking. Then Jesus laid his hands on his eyes again, and he opened his eyes. His sight was restored, and he saw everything clearly. And he sent him home to his home, saying, Do not even enter the village. Let's pray, and we'll look at this passage. Father God, we thank you for your word. We thank you specifically for this gospel that we've, we have in our possession, that we can know specifically what you did, the way you lived, how great and incredible you are, so much more than a man. And God, we thank you for the truth that you give to us, God, and help us not to be content with just having more intellectual knowledge today, learning some new facts or new truths, God, but allow these truths to sink down in our hearts so as we've sang in these songs that our lives will bring you glory, that we will reflect your goodness and your greatness to those around us, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Well, these verses are definitely unique when it comes to Scripture. Uh, Jesus is performing miracles is nothing unique. We've seen lots of those throughout the Gospel of Mark. But this two-step process of healing somebody is definitely something that's unusual, to say the least. And as we look at this passage of Scripture, let me first of all say, if you're newer here, you may have come from a tradition that really doesn't really believe in the truth of Scripture, meaning that Scripture is true. It presents a historically true account of what happened. And that's a rarity, even in Christianity these days, that people actually believe the Bible is true and it, these events happen. So let me just confirm, first of all, it's true. It's historically accurate. And not only do we have one witness, we have multiple witnesses as to what Jesus did and the way that he lived his life. But I do want to tell you that as we look through this passage, I'm convinced that this is a visual parable, what Jesus did here. And we'll see why it was a visual parable in a few minutes. But I think it's symbolizing something that's going on with the disciples. We looked at this, the beginning of this last week, that the disciples are on a journey with Jesus. And so this is something that's communicating to them as much as it is a process of healing this blind man. And so I, I do want to give a kind of a, a warning before we launch into this because there are uh, people who approach Scripture with simply what I want to call an allegorical method of interpretation, just looking for hidden truths or secret messages in the Bible. And most of the Scripture, the majority of Scripture, is straightforward. It's an account. It's, it tells you, here's what happened. And then you have different genres of Scripture. You have Psalms, Ecclesiastes, the Proverbs, who are di different expressions, but they're still rooted in reality. And, and so when you start to venture out into where you're taking something and, and comparing it or making it like something else, 
you got to be really, really careful when you do that. Uh, let me just, in case it's been a while since you've been in English class, all right, let me define allegory. What does that mean? It's a story that can be interpreted to reveal a hidden meaning. A story that can be in, uh, interpreted to reveal a hidden meaning. And the danger with this is someone can make Scripture pretty much say whatever they want it to say. They can take a passage of Scripture and start applying everything symbolically and making it just be whatever they want it to be. And that happens a, a lot. In fact, there, there was a, a very popular book out a few years back where a guy, and it was actually number one on the New York Times bestseller list, where he took Old Testament passages, especially in Isaiah, and he took these passages and he made, all of a sudden, made America be Israel and the promises that were given to Israel and the, and the truth that was spoken to Israel and the warnings that were given to Israel. And he took that and he applied that to the United States and he came up with these conclusions and these events that happened and connected it back to the Old Testament and did this dance where all of a sudden now all, everything in Isaiah applied to the United States of America. And while this book was written to be quote-unquote fiction, it really led to believe, people to believe this was legit conclusions that he was drawing in the, from these passages. And that's a fundamentally flawed way of understanding and applying the scripture. And you have to be very careful with that. And so as we deal with this passage of Mark, we're going to look at historically what happened in this, but also I believe because of church history being uh, over, over the centuries, the way they have seen this passage and dealt with this passage, I think there's incredible validity in seeing this as a, ver a visible parable symbolizing a journey for the disciples. So let me recap real quickly. Last week's sermon, Jesus cautioned his disciples about the false teaching of the Pharisees and the Herodians, the followers of Herod, and how they were corrupting God's truth. And he used an illustration, an illustration of yeast, to say that they needed to be aware of the yeast of the Pharisees and the yeast of the Herodians because they were allowing this sin and this perversion and this unbelief to mix in here and cause people to be deceived. And he says, be aware, because yeast, just like it works, and we illustrated that, just like it works and it's pervasive and it seems small, but it ripples and it begins to take over. The same thing is true with error, false teaching, uh, unbelief, and sin. These things seem innocent maybe at the moment, but they begin to reproduce and, and become larger and larger and larger. And so that was what... The, the, the theme was last week, and he warned his disciples to beware because if they fell for these things, they put themselves at great risk of ruin. And so Mark purposely sandwiches in this unique story of this healing between the dullness of the disciples where they were with Jesus, they were uh, spending time with him, or they were seeing miracle after miracle. They just finished a miracle of the feeding of the 4,000. They were seeing these things, yet they were so dull, and they still didn't connect it that Jesus was so much more than a rabbi and a good teacher. And next week, so we have this passage today we're going to deal with, next week is a pivotal moment in the Gospel of Mark. It's pivotal, pivotal because it's Peter's great confession of Jesus and who Jesus was. And so we have everything in the book has kind of been leading up to this point that we'll see next week. And once next week happens, Jesus turns to the cross and begins to head to the cross. Not just physically, 
but also in his words and the things that he says, he becomes to be becomes clearer about why his, he's come to earth, his purpose, and ultimately his sacrifice for us. And so sandwiched right here in the, in the middle, he's dealing with this blind man, and he does this two-step healing, and I believe this is such a vi- visible thing for the disciples because they were at risk, just like Judas, if they allowed the false teaching that was permeating the day and what will ultimately happen when Jesus is crucified, that Jesus is rejected, if they allow that into their hearts as well, they will be ruined as Judas was ruined. So verse 22, they came to Bethsaida, and some people brought to him a blind man and begged him to touch him. And so what do we see? We're going to see some details, important details in the story. The main thing is Did Jesus fail in his attempt at the beginning to heal this guy? We've seen Jesus heal instantaneously again and again over time. But he comes to this town called Bethsaida, and this is the hometown of Peter. And this is going to be the last of his ministry in Galilee, this area of Galilee, where he's going to turn, like I said, to the cross, go toward the cross. But he he has this encounter with this man before all that happens to move to the cross. And here this blind man comes to him. We've talked a lot about people in the first century who had disease, who had physical infirmities. We've talked about how they were received and rejected by their society. Let me recap that for you. That people who were sick or had maybe something they were born with, a blindness, a deafness, whatever, not only did they have to struggle through life with that disease, but then they had that doubly bad because the religious establishment, the people, the Jews looked at this person as if they or someone in their family had sinned and that had got them to this point. So this was God's judgment upon this family and they're in this situation because of what happened, what their family did, the sin that they brought into this situation. And Jesus, his approach is so different. It's so refreshing because he reaches out to the outcast. He loves and cares for those who society has marginalized and said, you're a sinner, stay away from our culture, stay away out of our society. And they received this brutal treatment. But look what, what happened. These people brought this guy to Jesus knowing that Jesus had a different approach. And what did Jesus do? He took the man by the hand and he led him out of the village. Jesus, different than society, not only would society not approach this man, but Jesus approached him And he took him by the hand, and he led him outside of town. So Jesus shows just this tender side, this loving side to him, where he's not afraid to approach people who are struggling, who are hurting. I don't know about you, but sometimes it can be tough to to approach people who maybe are struggling or have an illness because we don't know what to say. Maybe physically it doesn't bother us, but we're just at loss of words. How How do I comfort them? How do I help them? And as we've talked about, just like Jesus, we see Jesus is willing to do this. He's willing to reach out. He's willing to touch. As I was reading my quiet time one day this week, I came across Hebrews 4.15, which says, For we don't have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. And so he says, Jesus, the writer of Hebrews says, Jesus Set off Siri there for a second. She started to think I was saying Siri, I guess. Um, um, Jesus is able to sympathize with our weakness. He comes to us in those moments of struggle. And this, while this passage in Hebrews is speaking of someone who's struggling with sin, 
the application holds true as this person is, this man is struggling with his reception from society and the way society sees him. And Jesus goes to him. And so when, and, and we'll touch on this more in a minute, but as you go through things and as you see people go through things, don't just jump to the conclusion that they're getting punished for what they've done. That's, they're getting what they deserve because the truth is if we all got what we deserved, what would be the case, right? And then Jesus, what did he do? We've seen this once before too. He spat on his eyes and laid hands on him. You know, that's kind of gross, right? It seems kind of nasty that Jesus would do that. Back in chapter 7, you remember Jesus spat on, on his hands and rubbed it on the guy's eyelids. And he, and he touched the mute guy's ears with his spittle and, was, and healed them using that visual. And so Jesus didn't need to do this. We talked about that back in chapter 7. He didn't need to do that thing. There was nothing magical about a spit that he was using. And then it says he laid hands on this guy. So once again, he touched him, and now he, he lays hands on him. He, he, he goes close to him. In verse 23, then he says, what do you see? Do you see anything? And then interesting, the guy looks up, the blind man. He says, I see people. I'm seeing. I see people. But they look like trees walking. They look like trees walking. So did Jesus, like, fail? Did he, did he stumble? Did he not, like, quite get enough God juice out of him, right, to, in order to make this to happen? Over one-third of the Gospel of Mark has to do with encounters of miracles. Over one-third of it. So we understand that Jesus was doing miracles and had no problems before and no problems after performing miracles. Why did Jesus do miracles? We've talked about this. Why did he perform miracles? He performed miracles to help people answer the question, who, who is Jesus? Who is he? Is he just a rabbi? Is he just a teacher? And miracles showed that Jesus was so much more than that. And so in the, in, the, in the fact of him dealing with this guy and not performing it, obviously he's getting to something. He's teaching something. And so he asked this guy, do you see anything? This is also the only time that Jesus ask a person a question when he's healing that person. And so this miracle is radically different from all the other miracles that Jesus performs in that it takes place in two stages. And the guy says, I see, I see people. He's seeing, he's probably somebody who at one point had his sight because he recognizes people and he knows trees. And he says, I see people and they're blurry, they look like trees walking. And so we know that Jesus didn't not heal this guy immediately for the sake of the guy because what purpose would that be in order for him to do two stages to show this guy something? Neither did he use the two stages to increase the demonstration of his power to his disciples because that would probably, frankly, just do just the opposite. I think the two stages of the miracle are to teach the disciples a lesson. They symbolize something else beyond what's actually happening here. And this is what we talked about last week. The disciples, they're dull, but they're slowly coming around. They're slowly beginning to get it. Their eyes are being opened, but like the blind man, their spiritual vision isn't quite there. And it's interesting, up to chapter 8, Jesus did not want people to know that he was the promised Christ. Do you realize that? Up to this point, you remember we had the demons crying out, you're the Messiah, and he would tell them to be quiet, don't say anything. And he'd often caution people so far, don't go and tell people. And the same thing happens in this passage as well. He's very guarded about who knows that he's the Messiah at this point. He's keeping his identity somewhat 
hidden so that it would not encourage the wrong expectations about what the Messiah was supposed to be during this time. We talked about this and also about what his true mission really is. So, so he's somewhat cloaked, he's somewhat veiled in just revealing himself at this point because he's waiting for God's timetable. But as he's teaching these disciples, we remember last week in verse 21 that Jesus asked them a series of questions after they just were arguing over the loaf of bread and the, and the yeast thing and still not getting it like yeast. Okay, should we not eat bread that Herod makes and should we not eat bread that the Pharisees give us when we get hungry? And Jesus expresses frustration at the end of uh, uh, verse 21 where he, he's frustrated with the disciples for not getting it because they're not comprehending it. They've seen and heard enough from Jesus to have gotten it. But they're still not fully getting it. And I can't help but to just kind of stop at this moment and just think about this idea of faith for, for a few minutes. This idea of faith. Why does God put such a high value on faith? Faith is the sole instrument through which we can lay hold of Jesus, his perfect righteousness, in order to be accepted by God. Do you know that? Faith is the sole instrument that brings us into a loving relationship with God through Jesus Christ. And faith is the way that we continue to grow as a Christian. But it's not just faith in, as in, I just hope or I just want to believe. Faith always has an object. Faith always has an object, and that object is Jesus Christ. Jesus is the object and has to remain the object of our faith. But let's be real. Faith is hard sometimes. We're so tempted to take our eyes off Jesus and put them on a lot of other things. And oftentimes, maybe depending on how your brain is wired, oftentimes we want to be able to fully understand, fully comprehend, fully explain things. We want a God who's quantifiable. We want a God who's tangible who we can touch and feel. But that's not the way that God presents himself to us. I can't help but relate during times of my life to 15th century philosopher. And he, this guy was a scientist, amazing mathematician. But he said this, he said, seeing too much of to deny and too little to be sure, I am in the state to be most pitied. He said, I'm in this place where I'm seeing too much of God to deny him, but too little to be that certainty, that, uh, that, that is sure beyond like a scientific reasonable doubt. This guy here who's wired in a, in a right brain sort of way, he said, he, he said, I'm in a state to be pitied. Have you ever been there before? Maybe it's not when with wrestling with God's existence, maybe. Maybe it is, maybe it's not. But it, maybe it's wrestling with God's love and his presence in the moment. That as you go through things in life, and as life just continues to hit you with stuff, you begin to question God. You begin to question his goodness. You begin to question his reality, maybe. And in those moments, you maybe even bargain with God. You begin to make God little, little play little games with God. God, just once, just overwhelm me with proof of who you are, that you're here, that you're really here. And, and I'll believe, I'll never question you again, God. Just this one time, just give me the sign. Show me something tangible. Something's real. Fix this one situation. If you just fix this one thing, 
it, it'll be a game changer for me. It'll change everything. The problem is, God does not want to be proved. He wants to be believed. God does not want to be proved. He wants to be believed. I guess just can't help but to fall to the, to the scripture after Jesus' crucifixion and after his resurrection where he had appeared to the disciples in flesh and blood. They saw him. They interacted with him. They probably touched him. And then he went away for a week, scripture says. Well, one of the disciples was missing during that encounter. We know him as Doubting Thomas, right? Thomas, the disciple, had been with Jesus all along. Well, we call him Doubting Thomas, bad way to be known for 2,000 years, right? And, and, and Doubting Thomas is with the disciples, and the disciples are telling him this account of everything that happened. And Thomas is like, you know, guys, you know, I, I just I need, to, I need to have been there to believe. I just needed to touch his, the nail prints of his hand and, and, and the side. I need to put it in my hand there to really believe. Well, what happened? Jesus showed back up. And Jesus said this in John 20, 29. He said to Thomas, in the disciples, have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet believe. He said, blessed are you, you see, I mean, he said, you see me, you believe because you have seen me, but there's coming a generation and generations and generations who will not get the opportunity to touch the nail print, will put their hand on the side, will not be able to stand here and hold a physical conversation with me after I ascend into heaven. And so what does Jesus do? He, he says the necessity for this faith that goes beyond, and it's not the, the physical tangible that disciples had the privilege to encounter. It goes beyond that. It's, it's, it's so much more than that. And, it's, and God says, you're blessed in a special blessing because you believe and you don't see. So could it be that the reason God seems somewhat and I say this very carefully, somewhat hidden, is that he wants to be hidden. Why? Why would he want to do that? Well, just like he did it here in this passage of Scripture where he hides the truth. Why? Look at verse 26. And he sent the man who he healed at the end there, he sends him back to the village. Not to, he says, go back to where your, your home is, but don't go into the village. Don't go show everybody what happened. Why? Why did he do that? Well, here's the big 30,000 feet reason, because God has a plan. God had a plan, and it wasn't the time for Jesus to be revealed. And so while I would like to sit here and, and give you so many great explanations for why God doesn't just break through the clouds, drop down, show himself to the world, and say, here I am, everybody turn and believe, it's not his plan. It's not his plan. It's not his purpose, not his ways. And could it be that there's something so much different that we encounter about God because that's not the way that he reveals himself? We'll get back to that thought. But as we go through situations and as we go through struggles as Christians, and you scratch your head and you say, God, what are you up to? What are you doing here? This doesn't make sense to me. Here's what I want you to remember. It's through our weaknesses more than our strengths 
that God demonstrates his existence. It's through our weaknesses more than our strengths that God demonstrates his existence. Let me illustrate this for you in a, in a very practical, hope you'll remember kind of way. Let's take just a simple dumbbell. All right, I want you to think about faith like a muscle, okay? I want you to think about faith like a muscle, and it grows by lifting weights. Faith grows through resistance. And what is resistance? What is that resistance? What is this weight? It's those struggles with doubt. It's those struggles with uncertainty, with confusion, with situations that seem to tell us the opposite of what faith must believe. It's those situations that we're puzzled by. And we begin to think, I have no idea here what's going on. And this, this, is, this is hard. This is difficult. I'm struggling here with this. God, enough really already, right? And when it seems God is absent in these difficult circumstances, it's easy to question him. He doesn't care about me. He doesn't care what I'm going through. But here's what faith does. Faith says, God is good. He's for me. He has a plan. God is for me. He's good. He has a plan. And it's in those moments that our strength, our faith is strengthened. And our trust in God grows stronger. Our view of God, our vision of who God is, of Jesus, gets more robust. It gets greater. And we don't like this. And sometimes, you know, it's, it's heavier. It's, it's, it's a, a harder thing to deal with than maybe the th- some of the things you're dealing with now. And it's starting to get really, really difficult. And in fact, you question, God, I don't think I can handle this. This is too much. It's too much for me. Surely you made an, you, it's an accident that you put this into my life, that you allowed this in my life, that you ordained this into my life. And I think of verses like 1 Corinthians 10, 13, when I have these doubts about God. No temptation has taken you that is not common to man, but God is faithful. He will not tempt you beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide a way of escape so that you can endure it. And so you may be thinking, it's too hard, God. It's too difficult, God. But faith says, God, you're good. God, it, it doesn't feel good, and, I, and I'm struggling with questioning that in my mind, but I believe your word over my emotions, my thoughts, my feelings at this moment. God, you're a good God. You love me. And you're doing something great, even in this moment. And here's one thing I think is lacking, all right? If, if you've ever been to the gym and you've been around those guys in the back, you know, put like five plates on each side, you know, like, you know, it, it, it's amazing to me that, and, and I've been guilty of this at times, but these guys will go in there and they'll put all this weight on there and they'll be working out by themselves and they'll begin to just to, to, to work out. And what's the guy's name that comes over and stands behind you and helps you? What's that guy called? It's called a spotter, right? All right. And so oftentimes you, you, people will have a spotter. I want you to think about that like the church, all right? The church, we need people to come alongside us when we're struggling 
when we're crying out for help, when things are difficult, when we're going through really, really hard things in life. But a lot of times we're like that guy in the gym who's trying to do it. And he's like, I got this. You know, I got it. You know, I've got too much pride to say, hey, buddy, will you come here and help me? You know, I got this on my own. And, and we begin to lift and, and we do too many reps and then, boom, it's bound on our chest. And then somebody turns around and they see that guy struggling. They run over and, and pull the weight off and help him out. And the guy there is like, man, thanks. I appreciate that. That's what we do as a church. We do that. We, 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 we're sitting here, we're struggling, and I'm not going to ask for help. I don't want to burden people. I want to get, you know, they, they just have their own stuff going on. I'm just going to handle this myself. And then what happens? We're like this, and then fortunately, maybe somebody's paying attention, and they say, whoa, I see that guy struggling, or I see that lady struggling. I'm going to run over and help. And they provide help at that moment. I'm going to encourage you this, to don't wait till. You're crashing and burning. Ask for help. Be weak. Be humble. We have the body of Christ who's here to help us in those moments. To help us in our discouragement and depression, anxiety. We have K-groups that we try to build these relationships where you can reach out for prayer and help and even tangible assistance and and love and support. Are we that, do we have room to grow in that? Absolutely, just like the disciples did. But we have to begin to cultivate our K-groups, our groups where we have that kind of love and support for one another. Where people are willing to cry out and say, I need help getting through this. I need you to come alongside me. And somebody comes alongside you, encourages you, and helps you during those times. But as we struggle with our faith and struggle with doubts, I want you to just remind you that you're in good company. You're in good company. There's nothing evil with having some doubts pop into your mind or having some struggles with your faith. I, I love what a guy named Tom Price, he's an apologist, he says this. He says, God isn't forcibly obvious, but he sure is clearly visible. I love that. When I came across that last week, God isn't forcibly object, uh, obvious, but he sure is clearly visible. What he's saying is God hasn't revealed himself to you like a, a brick wall that you just, you can't avoid. It's just, boom, you're there. But he's clear in that he's so apparent in everything. He's so apparent. And skeptics and unbelievers want God to, you know, where's God? Where is your God? Reveal himself physically, intellectually. But God doesn't want us just to simply approach him that way. God is seeking a relationship that is based upon a deeper and more profound perception. A deeper and more profound perception. And I'm thankful that one day, as 1 Corinthians tells us, our faith will become sight. Now we see through a glass darkly. We, th we see dimly. But one day it's going to be face to face. I'm, I'm, I'm thrilled about that day. But during this life, I want to get God's perspective on the things that I go through because that's the very mechanisms that he uses to make us more like Jesus. And that's why we have verses like Hebrews eleven six. without faith, it's impossible to please God because we have to first believe that he exists, but we don't stop there. Even the demons believe he exists, right? And he rewards those who seek after him who seek after him. 
And if you're sitting here and you're, you're saying, you know, I, 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 don't, I don't know, I don't think anybody can get to that point where they really believe God so much that they just are convinced, I, I, you know, I just don't see it, they're playing a game or whatever. I could line up person after person to come across this stage and tell you things in their life where God wasn't necessarily a brick wall. That you know what? He was obvious. He was visible. It, it, there was something supernatural in these moments that just was slightly beyond the ability to explain. It's, it's, it's right there that maybe you would hope to tie it together and see how this was chance and accidents and, and, and all these things coming together and that could have happened anyway. But, you know, there's just something that, that, that says, you know, God's just on that. God's over that. There's something just special about that. And that's how God reveals himself so many times. And so to the skeptic, my challenge to you is, as Blaise Pascal says, you know, sure, you can, you can, you can want tangible evidence, but you can't deny God's existence. If he exists, if he's out there and he exists, You've got to take that next step. He rewards those who seek him. He just didn't wind up the clock and start it going and say, okay, now you figure out what to do with this world. He's out there. He's some distant guy. No, God is real. He revealed himself, and he rewards those. Again, Tom Price said, this may demand more of us than historical investigation, doing church, or theological reflections as great as those things are. But you will come to discover this clarity only through a living relationship with him. Through a living relationship with him. And I know that for some of you, maybe that's mysterious and ambiguous. You're like a relationship. People talk about that a lot at Grace. And I'm not really sure what it means to have a relationship. That's one of those things where you begin to spend time with God. You begin to... As the disciples should have, they saw truth, but they never considered truth. They never took the truth and, and wrestled and, 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 and just really dealt with it. They just were in the moment, just moving and moving and moving and missing what Jesus was doing all along. And they should have known who he was. But they were seeing, just see some trees, some people. It's kind of weird. I don't see with clarity here. And Jesus is showing the disciples, hey. You need to see me for who I am. And next week, Peter starts to get it. Not fully, but he starts to get it. And so as long as we are here on earth and sin still lives inside of us, there's going to be pockets of spiritual blindness in us. There's going to be doubts at times. It's okay. We live in a world that promotes skepticism. And unfortunately, church isn't sometimes the safest place to, to express those struggles. But I want to say that Moses, Mary, Job, David, Thomas, and others express serious doubts and conflicts with God. If you read the Psalms, you'll find, you'll find plenty of doubting, plenty of questioning. But if you have embraced the, the truth of Jesus, even if there are many things that you're still confused about and wrestling with, I want to just assure you this. If you've embraced, if you've seen Jesus and embraced his truth, Grace has visited you at some level. Because why? If you're spiritually blind, apart from his revealing of himself to you, you have never arrived there on your own. 
And so if, if you're getting a glimpse of Jesus as we're singing about Jesus, Son of God, we praise you. We stand in awe. And all of a sudden it's more than just words on a screen, but you say, Jesus, thank you. Thank you for being you. Thank you. And I'm still struggling with how I piece everything together here and make sense of it all. And, and life is pretty tough with some stuff that you're throwing at me. I'm seeking your perspective on this. Praise God that grace is coming into your life, that Jesus is revealing himself to you, that that's a step that only you can make because of God. And if you've ever admitted, I'm a sinner, I need Jesus, that's grace. That's amazing grace that we're going to sing about in a minute. Amazing grace that God's visited you, that God has revealed himself to the point where you understand, I got nothing. I can't bring anything. I'm a sinner. I need a Savior. And so the disciples, here they are. They're on this, this journey with Jesus. And not just a physical journey, although it was a very physical journey of walking through life with him for three years or so. But they're on this spiritual journey as well. God is revealing truth through the person of Jesus, through the miracles of Jesus. But they're still like, oh, I'm not sure. That's not much different than me and you. All right? It's not. I'll be, in 2020, I'll be, I hate to admit this, I'll be 50 years old. All right? 50 years old. Ah, this thing's cra crazy, right? And I think about my own life. I, I think about that I came to Christ, I made a profession at the age of five. I was really young, but I, I, at that time, I, I heard the gospel. My dad explained it to me. I believed. I put every faith that I, a bit of faith I had in Jesus. But you know what? That was 45 years ago, people. All right? And, 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 and I haven't come a, a long way since then. All right? I mean, not near as far as if you would have caught me at 17 and said, at, at 49, 50 years old, where will you be spiritually? Oh, I'll be walking on water by then, right? You know? I'm sorry. It, it's just, it's not there. It's not happening. There's still struggles. There's still doubts. What? Preacher, doubts, what? There's still doubts sometimes. God, what are you doing in this moment? God, this doesn't make sense to me whatsoever. Why don't they get it? Why don't they see? But God's doing something. He's doing something in me, and he's doing something in you. Wednesday, as I was working on the early stages of the message and just thinking through some of the stuff, I got a text from Keller Galpin. And Keller always has some great questions to ask. And Keller was asking me some questions, and we were just dialoguing back and forth. And I was like, this is exactly where I'm going with in the sermon, just this how God just works on us and works on us and works on us. And sometimes we want more clarity, like, okay, was this the moment that you did this? Or when, when are you going to do this? And sometimes it's, we're just not sure because it's, it's this process in our eyes, our vision of Jesus and his greatness gets clearer and clearer as we trust God and follow him and believe in his promises and say, God, you're good. You're good. Even though this hurts, you're good. And so I, I asked Keller, I said, if I can get Mitch to do it on a short notice, will you just put a video together to just tell your story and what God's done in your life? And so they were able to do this. Thank you, Mitch, for making that happen and Keller for doing it. And so just watch Keller in his own words tell a little bit about his spiritual journey. So often... I, when I hear people share their testimonies, um, they n normally can uh, point to this date and time. They're like, this is when 
I know that I was saved. Every time I think about that, well, when did that happen with me? I'm, I'm not really sure when exactly that day was. I, I have a good idea that I, of the day that I think it was. I, I had this, this desire in my heart that day um, at an FCA camp when I went in front of everybody. I had lived my life up until that point just for myself. I had gone, come in and out of the church and youth groups and things like that, but it was more for social uh, reasons. You know, I went up there and something was different in me. I knew after that I desired to get in the scriptures for the first time in my life. I desired to know who God was. I desired to know who Jesus was. I had a few idols in my life that I desired to I desired God, but I desired these idols, and I, and I gave in to these idols. I wanted them more. I didn't have anyone come alongside me and say, hey, I want to I wanna teach you. I want to help you understand this. You think about the prodigal son. You think about the stories, or you think about what Jesus says in Scripture, and a believer can and may sometimes, at some point, not everybody, but some get distracted by the world, but God pursues them and, and and, and once you're a believer, he is going to finish the work that he began. Uh, I think that's what was happening. He never let me get comfortable in my sin. I would just get, just break down and just have this overwhelming sense of remorse. If God wasn't pursuing me, I don't think I, I think I would have said, I don't, this is too hard. This is not what I want. I'm going to do what my flesh desires. I never felt that sense that I don't want God. I never felt that. Um, and, and to me... That doesn't come from me. That comes from the Spirit prompting me that, hey, that, that this you want, you desire me. You don't desire that thing as much as you think you do. Maybe that's similar to your story as well. You know, just you've wandered, you strayed, you put other things, but you know God's just pursuing you. You're here for you're here today. It's probably a good thing, right, that you're following God, you're doing what he's calling you to do, but it's more than just church attendance. It's a, it's a heart that's being given to God. It's a, it's a life that's committed for his glory. We don't become better so we can be ourselves 2.0. We become more like Christ so we can glorify him. And as the song we sang, that our lives will bring you glory, that Jesus gets the glory for our lives. And you know what? Here's, here's the thing that Scripture says over and over, that we find joy and delight in God, that we can enjoy, that it's not easy, but we find great joy in putting him first. And as Mitch Escobar said with the umbrella illustration, we find safety in God's will, in God, what God wants us to do. When we stray outside of that is where we make a mess and just bring so much self-inflicted pain on ourselves. But even those moments, God still redeems those for his children's good and, and his glory. And so, verse 25, Jesus laid hands on his eyes again. And this time, he opened his eyes, his sight was fully restored, and he could see everything clearly. Everything clearly. And next week, Peter and the disciples are going to start to get clarity they're going to start to realize we've been walking around here with a guy who's doing miracles and we've missed it. This guy is the Messiah. But they, fully, they won't fully get it till afterwards, after the crucifixion and resurrection. And so even in their case, 
there's still a process here. How about you? Maybe today, maybe God has become clearly visible to you. Not tangible and concrete and not beyond a shadow of a doubt as far as physically, scientifically speaking. Or as Tom Price said, forcibly obvious. But you know that God's real and he's pursuing you. What scripture say? Confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus. Believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead and you will be saved. Repent and be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. Is what the the message was in Acts 2. Repent and be baptized. Turn to God. Turn from your sin. I promise you that one day you'll be glad that you did. And for Christians in here, know that God is working on you. And Keller would tell you, it's still a work in progress. I'm still a work in progress. And so are you. God is working. He's doing things. Submit to him. And maybe you need some, where where do I go from here? I, I, I feel this. Where do I go as a Christian from this? I've said this a lot over the last weeks. You need, you need spiritual disciplines and spiritual rhythms in your life. You need to be seeking God consistently. And here's where, you know, it's easy in the moment to be like, ah, oh, I need to do something. But then we leave and we get and Monday going and, and then Tuesday and Wednesday and we've fallen out of the spiritual habits that we need. We need regular rhythm with God. We need to be in God's presence. We need to be considering him often. We need to be in prayer, not just God fix this, do this make this better, but prayer that says, God, I want to be used of you in a way that's beyond my ability. I'm weak, but you're strong. And I trust you that you can do some great things through my life. And spiritual disciplines like fasting that we talk about once a month here, but you know, fasting is a great way just to say, I'm putting off the flesh. I'm putting off my own impulses and desires. And that can be fasting from the, the TV that you get sucked into a, a lot or, or, or it could be food or whatever. But it's not that you become more spiritual by conquering that thing, but that gives you space in order to seek God better and put to death the deeds of the flesh. Consider him, spending time knowing God because he rewards those who seek after him. Let's pray. God, we thank you. For this great story today, uh, such an interesting account. And God, we thank you that as we've just seen these narratives of Scripture, it's so much more than just pulling out a verse here or there and claiming it for our own, but we see just as you walk this earth and the, the encounters that you had and the people that you dealt with and the miracles that you performed, that you were revealing yourself as something so much more than a man. And through your resurrection, you proved that, God. And God, in this moment where those who are struggling with faith, help them to truly trust that that you are there and that you will reward them if they seek you and put their faith and confess Jesus Christ. And God, I pray that you'll put to rest their minds that is constantly seeking after something that you're not going to give them, something that's that's tangible, that's you coming down and, and touching them. You've given us your church, the body, to be that in this moment during this time, God. And we long for the day where you will come for us, that you will break through the clouds and you will 
we will come to be with you forever, God. You will establish your new heaven and new earth, and we will rule and reign with you. We look forward to that day where our faith will be made sight. But until then, God, we, we live by faith, not by sight. And we move by faith and not by sight. In Jesus' name.